Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen to Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more, Wondery means business. Hey there, I'm Michelle Obama, and I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for being a part of the Light Podcast. It wouldn't be the same without you. And if you enjoyed my show... I have a feeling you're going to love this brand new Audible original podcast from Higher Ground. It's called Your Mama's Kitchen, and it's hosted by my dear, dear friend, Michelle Norris. For as long as I've known Michelle, she's been an absolute master in the kitchen. I have so many wonderful memories of her gathering our group of girlfriends around the table for unforgettable conversations that always leave us feeling nourished and inspired and warm. And don't even get me started on Michelle's chili. It's out of this world. And in this podcast, she's going to be sharing another one of her specialties, a good conversation Each week, Michelle is going to talk to authors, actors, musicians, the most interesting people on the planet. And she's going to start each conversation with one simple request. Tell me about your mama's kitchen. And I just love this question because so much of American life starts in the kitchen. It's where we are nourished physically and spiritually. Some of my own best childhood memories involve food, friends and family gathering in the kitchen, making our favorite dishes, talking, laughing, sharing stories along the way. Making and sharing big meals was how we showed we cared, how we made sure we could make time to sit down and actually talk and laugh and sometimes even shed a tear or two. For so many of us, Food is love. Meals are home. And your mama's kitchen is at the core of it all. So I couldn't be more thrilled about this podcast. And to kick it off, the first episode features me. I had so much fun reminiscing with Michelle about my own mama's kitchen back on Euclid Avenue. I just can't wait for you to hear this conversation. So stay tuned. And if you like what you hear... Subscribe to Your Mama's Kitchen. You can find it right now anywhere you get podcasts. This teeny tiny little room was where we did everything. We grew up there. We became teenagers, adults in that small space. But it felt big to us because that's what kitchens do. You know, they can be small and 
big at the same time because we we packed a lot into that house, into that kitchen. Welcome to Your Mama's Kitchen, the podcast where we explore how the food and culinary traditions of our youth shape who we become as adults. I'm Michelle Norris, and I am so glad you're here. It's great to be back in front of a microphone. That simple question, tell me about your mama's kitchen, opens up all kinds of delicious memories. Of course, because of the food, but also because the kitchen is usually the heartbeat of the household. So many important things happen there. The debates, the experiments, the arguments, the homework, the card games, the unpaid bills that sometimes stacked up on the kitchen table. It's the place where we spent time with the people we love the most. And all those meals and all those memories simmer inside us forever. All of it shapes who we become in interesting and sometimes surprising ways. Hey there. Hey. Thanks for coming into the studio. From one Michelle to the other. We have Michelle squared here. (laughs) Thanks for having me, babe. I bet you recognize that voice. My very first guest on Your Mama's Kitchen hardly needs an introduction, but let's go ahead and do it anyway. Michelle LaVon Robinson Obama will forever be our forever first lady. As the first Black woman to live in the White House, as the spouse of America's first Black president, she's also a mother, a lawyer, an author, a sister, and a daughter, a fashion icon. In fact, an outright icon in part because she's a woman who knows how to speak her mind. With that simple opening prompt, tell me about your mama's kitchen, she was on board. She understood the power of that question because she's talked about the importance of building a supportive kitchen table of trusted family and friends all throughout her life. I'm so glad that she's with us on the show because it gives our listeners a chance to learn more about Michelle Obama's origin story and all the lessons she learned in her mama's kitchen. And as you'll hear, boy, was that a special place. It was a place filled with love and lifelong values of integrity, honesty, hard work. And when Michelle Obama wants a taste of home, we'll learn about the recipe that she craves. It's a Southern dish, and it's delicious. And I'm guessing that you're going to want to try it in your own kitchen. So stay with us for the recipes, for the kitchen wisdom, and for a whole lot of laughter. I am so glad that we get to do this. I know. So when I had the idea Mm -hmm. for this podcast... Your dear friend, I shared the idea with you Mm -hmm. because I trust you so much. It was validating. Because it's a great idea. Everything starts at the kitchen table. Right there. Right there. It's the heart of every home, the center of everyone's life, that kitchen table. I wrote about it in The Light We Carry, developing that kitchen table. So I I was right there with you. And and I'm glad you're right there with me right now. Yes, right here indeed. with me in this right moment. Here. So tell me about your mama's kitchen. Ooh. On Euclid Avenue, mm. what did that kitchen look like? Close your eyes and take me back there. Oh, 7436 South Euclid. Spent all of my life in that kitchen. And just to describe the house, because it was a two-family house. We lived upstairs, the Robinsons, and our landlords were my great-aunt Robbie and Uncle Terry. So They were right downstairs. They were right downstairs. And I don't think initially the house was built to be a two-family home because it was so small. I think the upstairs was supposed to be the upstairs. So the kitchen is not 
really a kitchen. It's sort of a makeshift kitchen. Mm-hmm. That's how small the apartment was. So to get up to our apartment, there was a side door and a very narrow staircase that led directly up to a small hallway and right to the left was the kitchen which was probably a bedroom at the time. Ah, and it had been converted. That had been converted. So it was tiny, just a small sink, a formica sink, that mm-hmm. hard white, you know. Resin res- kind of, Right, yes. exactly. Little ridges on the side, just a small little section mm-hmm. where you could put the dish rack. Yes. To let the water no dishwasher. Oh, and, and no, dish- no, no dishwasher. You were the dishwasher. You and Craig were the dishwashers. We were the dishwashers. There wasn't a lot of cabinet space because this was a bedroom. So there was the sink. I think there was a shelf over the sink where mom would put odds and ends like mercurial comb. You remember that medicine oh, yes, that, that you put on scars? Red and the red medicine. That so they that, put on everything. Exactly. You know, sort of like it had a little dropper. It was like it's the dropper <laughs> yes, I like loved. Tussin, it was sort of like, like a version of Tussin. <laughs> Right? You put it on every injury. (laughs) So that was sort of like a little medicine shelf. So there was that shelf and just a sink. Then there was a little doorway, which probably was the closet of the bedroom that was turned into like a pantry. The refrigerator was in the closet because there was literally no room for it in the kitchen, which is how small this room was. Mm -hmm. So it was a Jack Lake kitchen, Mm -hmm. you know. But they made it work. It made it work, right. Did you eat in the kitchen or eat in the dining room? Oh, there was no dining room. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, a dining room. What was that? Uh, We had no dining room. You had the kitchen. There was one table. It was probably a borrowed or used dining room table with four or five chairs around it. My mother put that plastic picnic table cloth mm-hmm, that table you could just wipe off that you just wipe off and it was it was yellow yellow checkered but that was there my entire life so th- that tablecloth had a life of its own like you knew where the cigarette burns were that left the hole in one place you you could map out our childhood the time you spilled the easter egg dye mm-hmm. on that one spot that blue ink wouldn't come out of it. That tablecloth was like If that tablecloth could talk. Right, the map of our lives. And what would sit on the tablecloth was a napkin holder with paper napkins, a salt and pepper shaker, and it was on like a mat. There was a clock on the wall and the framing of the entry door told a story because we'd measure ourselves along that. You had little marks on the door. Little markers of how tall we got. The ledge, my father used it as Craig started to become better at basketball to get him to jump higher. He would place coins or pennies on the ledge and he could get the coin if he could jump high. Oh, there was a phone, one of those princess phones you hung on the wall. With the long, with the long curly cue cord. cord. And the bathroom was right off of the kitchen. And the only way you could get privacy in my house was to take the phone. If you were on the phone as a teenager, take the phone and stretch that cord into the bathroom and close the door. So, I mean, this teeny tiny little room was where we did everything. I mean, the thing I marvel at is how small our home was and how much we packed into the teeny tiny spaces that housed four people. We grew up there. We became teenagers, adults. My brother became 6'3", then 6'4", and 6'5", in that small space. But it felt big to us because that's what kitchens do. 
You know, they can be small and big at the same time. Mm-hmm. We were poor. You know, when I describe it, I was like, dang, we were poor. <laughs> but, but poor it wasn't a word that you would have applied to yourself. Never. Then. We were always very fortunate, we believed. Fortunate, blessed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is what we were. And we were because we, we packed a lot into that house, into that kitchen. So tell me about the kind of table that your mother deliberately created. You know, partially with the food, but also with the other things that happened at that table. Because a whole lot of business yeah, happens yeah. at a kitchen table. Oh, that's a, that's a good question. The table my mother created was a table of, I would say, high efficiency. Because so much happened at that little table. That was like the, the, the central operating systems place in the house. You bake bread, made pie crust, you did bills, you did your homework at that table, you filled out the trading stamps. You remember when oh. you had... Oh, yes. S&H? S&H trading stamps. S&H, Yeah, right. When you had collected them all, that became the central place where you would lick the stamps, put them in the books, and figure oh out goodness. what you, you could were, buy I with have them. not thought about that in so yeah. long. Yeah. Those books with those little grids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we dyed Easter eggs there. It was a place of efficiency because my mom didn't have a lot of space to do her mom work, to pay bills. All of that had to happen at that one table. And when I think about the fact that she got so much done, homework, overseeing things, laughter, visits happened at the kitchen table. So when people came to visit, that's where they would gather. Because she's cooking. And if you had an uncle and cousins, everybody wanted to be there with her while she was frying chicken or getting something ready. So I don't care how many people were there, we were all sitting around that kitchen table so we could be a part of the conversation. I played jacks on that floor. Mm. Our friend, my girlfriends from grammar school who walked home and had lunch at my house, we would have anywhere from seven to eight little girls there during lunch hour to eat our little bag lunches and then to play jacks on the floor. But the entire day, it felt like, was spent in that room. In the kitchen. So if we could go back in time Mm -hmm. and someone marched into your family refrigerator and threw open the doors, Mm. what story would that refrigerator tell? Oh, it would probably tell the story of a working class family. And our stuff lasted a long time. You could open the refrigerator, but you couldn't just get what you wanted. You couldn't afford to just eat all of anything. You know, you'd have a bag of Oreo cookies for like a month. Yeah, because you, you know? get two or three at a time. Two or three. I remember the time, this is when I thought my mother was magical. I was asking for a pre-dinner snack, which was rare. And I was begging her. I was like, I'm starving. Dinner is going to take forever. Can I just get an Oreo? And she said, okay, you can get one Oreo. She was in the living room, mm-hmm. unusually. So I went back into the kitchen. I was like, she's not looking. I'm going to get two Oreos. So I ate one, and then I came up with a one. And I sat there, and I ate my one, and she said, I thought I told you to only get one. I was like, how did you know? She said, because you have two Oreo breath. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, whoa. (laughs) She had eyes in the back of her head. She's a witch. (laughs) (laughs) She probably heard you in the package. She probably, you know, I probably took longer than I thought. I would, you know, kids. And she just knew also no child is going to take one. What child takes just one Oreo? No one does that. I did from then on. (laughs) 
There's another thing that often happened in kitchens like ours when we were little, and that's hair. Saturday night for so many little black girls was the night we got our hair done. Our mothers would sit us down at the kitchen sink to wash our hair, condition it, and comb it out. And because black girls have a head full of curly, kinky, fuzzy, coily, reach-for-the-sky hair, that meant the whole ordeal could take hours when our hair was braided and plaited and straightened or curled. There was a whole lot of fidgeting, ooh, a whole lot of fidgeting, and often a few tears. Now, we sure looked cute when it was all done, but woo. What we had to go through at the kitchen sink, it was a ritual that frankly brings up all kinds of complex memories for a whole lot of brown women of a certain age. Was your mother a kitchen beautician? Oh, she was. She was. And it was so painful. We just, there was the, sort of the battle with Were hair. Were you tenderheaded? I had so much hair. It was just a lot of it. And it took hours to comb through it. And, you know, and then it just was, it was not a comfortable place for Micah Sink. So I would lay on one edge of it and you, your head would be hitting the back of mm-hmm. it and you'd like have I'm a towel. I'm just talking about it. I can feel that thing oh, in the back God, of my neck. Oh, God, it would just hurt and you couldn't squirm. And you were just, you know, it took forever because it was just sink water, right? It wasn't some gushing hair you didn't have spray. a, a high-pressure It wasn't high-pressure. So it would take forever to get the hair wet enough to get the soap in there. And it was a well of balsam that stung your <laughs> eyes. Oh, man, hair doing day was just, my father would leave the room, Craig. Nobody wanted to be back there with the two of us while I was fighting and crying and mad and she was mad. And, and then they had the you hot know, comb. The hot comb on the stove. You know, people may be listening to this and wondering, what is a hot comb? So a hot comb was a wooden handled metal comb mm-hmm. that you would heat up usually by fire, and it would straighten. You'd put it on. With a little grease, Mm -hmm. and the combination of the hair grease and the warmth would be like you would literally be ironing your hair out straight, which is the pain of trying to follow somebody else's notion of beauty because our hair is beautifully curly and magical in that way. But, you know, if you raised in America... (laughs) <laughs> you were trying to tame it. You were trying to tame it and turn it into something that it wasn't, which required huge amounts of heat and grease to make it happen. And you would be pulling on every strand of hair to get it as straight as possible so that it would blow in the wind <laughs> and fluff about. Yes. And that took hours. My mother quickly sent me to the neighbor lady who had the beautician shop in her basement. Mm-hmm. She was a was across the alley from us. And the minute my mother found out that, oh, Miss Phillips, that Miss Phillips did hair. I think if I was five years old, she sent me across the alley with a little wad of money mm-hmm. <laughs> and said, let Miss, Miss Phillips do it. So I started going to the hairdresser when I was five, six years old, just to stop that battle between me and my mother. But yes, the kitchen was my first beauty salon. We we also had in our neighborhood a basement beautician that we used to go to and she could do in maybe hour 45 minutes but would what take like days, three hours exactly. you know for my mom. We were do. all grateful for Miss Phillips. Tell me what dinner was like like an average Tuesday night mm-hmm. dinner in the Robinson household. Dinner was dinner was an expectation. I, I want to say that because when I hear about people who don't eat dinner together I can't envision that. 
I can't envision... When people are too busy to all sit down together. Right, where everybody, one person eats at one time. Some people stand up eating. Oh, you would never be allowed to stand up and eat. You had to sit at the table. And our little poor table, but there was a process. Mm -hmm. There was a ritual of dinner time. Same time every night? About same time. The only time we changed stuff up because my father worked shifts, Mm -hmm. right? So if he was in a shift where we might have to eat a little earlier to eat with him, Mm -hmm. otherwise we didn't eat with him, but we had dinner at the same time. And we all four of us sat together. We'd say our prayer, Mm -hmm. God is great, God is good. Or, you know, sometimes the prayer would change, but Mm -hmm. we would always bow our heads and say a prayer. My mom never considered herself a good cook because she grew up in a big family with Mm -hmm. lots of sisters and everybody had a set of chores. She was always the cleaner. She had other sisters who cooked, Mm -hmm. but she could cook. Mm -hmm. But she was a Betty Crocker cookbook cook. You know? Okay, tell me what that means. That big Betty I remember Crocker, that big red and white Betty Crocker cookbook. She cooked I from recipes, that. and mm-hmm. she was less throw a little bit of here, a dash of there. She operated off of recipes, and I think her ideas of meals came from there. So, so meatloaf and mashed meatloaf, potatoes. Meatloaf, roast beef with rice and gravy, spaghetti and meatballs mm-hmm. when she felt fun and free and Italian. You know, that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was our notion of traveling the world when we had spaghetti and meatballs, right? With that, with that Parmesan that you oh, would yeah, shake? Oh, yeah, the shaken Parmesan. Like that. That, what, was that Parmesan? I, I don't know or if it's I don't, Parmesan. It was Parmesan I don't, dust. We're not going to denigrate right, we don't any particular know. corporate we entity, but <laughs> <laughs> it did have an interesting consistency now that you Ex- had real Parmesan. You know that that's not what Parmesan <laughs> is like at all. Um, oh, you also had some kind of Tabasco sauce because my dad liked hot sauce. Did your dad cook? Did Fraser Robinson cook? Occasionally. He cooked like a lot of men, because my husband is the same way. He can cook, but how many times does he cook? Not much, but yes, my father. Mr. Obama cooks. Oh, yeah. Yes. He, yeah. Shoot, anybody who can read and has sense and taste buds can cook, okay? (laughs) Follow a recipe, (laughs) you can cook. So for all the men out there who swear they can't cook, if you can read, you can cook. And they usually cook when fire is involved. They're, right, they're right. like some grilling something up or something. But, but, but Barack had recipes, and my father did too. He made this wonderful peppered steak because he also, because he went to the army, I think for a period of time, he learned how to cook some things in the army. He made a really beautiful apple pie, homemade apple pie. Mm. And I don't know why. That was you his still, thing. You're a pie person to this day. I am a pie person. And my dad made this wonderful deep dish pie. He would make his own crust. But he didn't cook often because he was the primary mm-hmm. breadwinner and he was a shift worker. But when he cooked, it was special. And we all gathered round to watch dad peel the apples and make his little, you know, concoction to make the apples sweet. It was a very special thing when dad cooked. When I would visit Chicago, there was, I I noticed among my aunts and uncles that lived in Chicago, that there was almost like an underground culinary economy. Mm. They wouldn't call it a culinary, it's a word that they would not use, but there was a sort of (laughs) kitchen economy Mm -hmm. where people were doing things out of their kitchen as currency almost. Mm -hmm. Because maybe they couldn't pay someone, but they could send over a pie or yeah. send over a cake. You would say thank you mm-hmm. with something from the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see that in your own neighborhood? You know, yes. But what I remember with every meal, it seemed like there was this big leftover tradition, takeaway tradition, because you had to cook enough, but then everybody had to get a plate, 
right? Afterwards. <laughs> and getting the plate just seemed like it was such a big it deal, was a right? Big deal. No, no, not that plate. Get your plate. plate and plate and did you get a plate? Yeah. And you get in trouble if you didn't get a plate because, well, how am I going to keep? Uh, we have too many ribs. Did everybody get a plate? And then the, the aluminum foil mm-hmm. would come out, right? Yes. And the yes. paper big plate. Sheets and, of a mu- you know, and there'd foil. be the chow line to make your leftover plate. But it was such a big deal that I think people felt like, I cooked all this food and we can't waste it. And it was also a sign of respect. <laughs> it was definitely a sign of respect because if you didn't take, take somebody's potato salad and some aunts, you didn't want their, <laughs> you know, their takeaway. Yeah, we yeah. have one aunt, Carolyn, may she rest in peace, but all my cousins, if they hear this, will understand. Whenever she cooked, we were very disappointed. Oh, no. Because uh-huh. Aunt Carolyn, who never had kids, my mom's oldest sister, and she lived with my grandfather, which was even more annoying because my grandfather was an amazing cook. Southside, Southside was known to cook throughout the day. You know, if your name is Southside, of course you're a good cook. He was just that. He's a jazz listener. He was the grandfather where the house was filled with music, and he was always cooking. Barbecue up some ribs, but if you stayed and played cards long enough, he might just go in and back and fry some chicken wings and make some milkshakes as mm. like a midnight snack. Mm. So that's who Southside was, right? So if you went over to Southside's house and Carolyn had cooked, the kids would just, all the kids would be like, <laughs> no! We're in a no. podcast so people can't see what you do with your head. <laughs> just but you like, just like, you just oh. roll your head and say, no, not Carolyn. <laughs> and your mom would be like, shh, don't say anything. You know, don't be rude. One day we were over there, the cousins, we still talk about this. You know what she made? Liver and onions. For 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 a a family meal. (laughs) I mean, that's what you make. That's just, that's the punishment dinner. Yeah. Right? That's (laughs) the dinner. That's the dinner that you don't, you you walk home from school and you can smell it and it's like liver. Right? Carolyn made liver. So I actually was, like liver and onions, but I'm I did odd not. That way. You were a rare child. Yeah, but you got to cook it, or other, otherwise, like shoe leather. No child yeah. in our family like liver. Right? It's not what you went to Southside's house for. So yes, we never took her leftovers, and you would be insulted not to take home. Who's going to take home liver and onions? Well, We'd be no, like, Mom, do no. not get leftovers because we are not eating this again. <laughs> so our currency <laughs> was was shared food. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that is, was, that is an act of love. Let me take a plate. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, and there was always a little plate for somebody who couldn't come, too elderly, you know, too infirm. Absolutely. And so make sure to send a plate home to Yeah, because it was Gasset really, or, yeah, we couldn't loan people money, you know? You, you food did is love. Things. Food is love. Acts of kindness because you couldn't afford anything else. So, yes, that was our neighborhood, our family. It was all about the food, for sure. Stay with us for more of my conversation with Michelle Obama. That's coming up after this short break. And now it's time to share our Maker's Mark custom cocktail recipe inspired by today's guest, former First Lady Michelle Obama. This special segment is presented by Maker's Mark. During my conversation with Michelle Obama, I was really taken by what she said about how the kitchen can be small but big at the same time. Her mama's kitchen on the south side of Chicago was a tiny makeshift space, yet it worked. No matter the size or complexity, the kitchen table can hold a great 
weight in our lives. And the same thing holds true for cocktails. It doesn't take a lot of extravagant or splashy ingredients to make a great tasting cocktail. All you really need is a few things you probably already have and a great bourbon. This inspired recipe has simple ingredients but still packs a lot of flavor. It even leaves you with a delightful bit of fizz and who doesn't love a cocktail with a little fizz? That's why we're calling it the bourbon fizz. Now let's get to the good stuff, the ingredients. To make this recipe, you will need two parts Maker's Mark bourbon, three to four fresh mint leaves, preferably still on the stem, one part fresh lemon juice, one half part simple syrup, that's a one-to-one -one ratio of sugar and water, two parts sparkling water, some ice cubes, a lemon wheel, and a sprig of mint for garnish. You always have to have that garnish. Now, the instructions. In a cocktail shaker, gently muddle the fresh mint leaves to help release their flavors. Not too much, just enough so you get that aroma. Add Maker's Mark bourbon, always Maker's Mark, fresh lemon juice, and simple syrup to the shaker. Fill the shaker with ice cubes and shake vigorously until the whole thing is thoroughly chilled. Strain the mixture into a glass that's already filled with ice. Top off the glass with sparkling water to add a refreshing splash of fizz. And then garnish with fresh mint and a lemon wheel for some extra flair. There you have it, the bourbon fizz. Raise a glass to toast today's guest with this simple yet delicious drink. And thank you so much to Maker's Mark for sponsoring this custom cocktail recipe produced by ACAS Creative. Maker's Mark is the perfect full-flavored bourbon to use in this recipe. The taste is sweet with a balance of oak, vanilla, and fruity essences. You could feel that spice mixing along with the sweeter flavors. It pairs extremely well with all the other ingredients. Hope you'll enjoy it. Maker's Mark makes their bourbon carefully, so please enjoy it that way. Maker's Mark Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, 45% alcohol by volume. Copyright 2023 Maker's Mark Distillery Incorporated, Loretto, Kentucky. If you'd like to make this recipe yourself, and I hope you do, check out my Instagram at Michelle underscore underscore Norris to get the full breakdown. That's two underscores. That's Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, underscore, underscore, Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S. Hi, I'm Glennon Doyle, author of Untamed and host of the podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. On We Can Do Hard Things, my wife, Abby, my sister, Amanda, and I do the only thing we've found that has ever made life any easier. We drop the fake and we just talk really raw and honestly about all the hard parts of life. So come on over and join us and some of our friends and greatest heroes like former First Lady Michelle Obama, Tracy Ellis Ross, Gloria Steinem, Elizabeth Gilbert, Brandi Carlisle, Brene Brown, and our beloved community, the Pod Squad. You'll hear refreshingly honest conversations, trust me, about sex, gender, parenting, blended families, our bodies, anxiety, addiction, feeling overwhelmed, just all of it. Life is hard, so let's do it together. Meet us every Tuesday and Thursday for We Can Do Hard Things, one of Apple and Spotify's top shared podcasts of 2023. Listen to and follow We Can Do Hard Things, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and everywhere you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
You're listening to the Audible original, Your Mama's Kitchen. Like what you're hearing? Listen to more from Michelle Obama between episodes by visiting audible.com slash the light we carry. Sign up for a free Audible trial and get your copy of the light we carry audiobook. For now, enjoy Your Mama's Kitchen. We grew up in an interesting era where there was a collision of cultures. The women's movement mm-hmm. was really starting to explode when we were in junior high and high school. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered what that meant for a generation of women mm. who were conditioned with certain expectations in life. Yeah. And then suddenly a generation right behind them was coming up and saying, we can be more. Mm-hmm. And what wasn't said, but somehow was maybe implied, is you should be wanting more, too. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that debate found its way into your household mm-hmm. at all. And do you, re- do you remember that at all? You know, it's interesting because it's sort of yes and no. The no part is because, I, like a lot of Black households, the women were the matriarch earners. Mm -hmm. My father's generation, he was the breadwinner in our family. He had a steady city job. My mother stayed home until we went to high school. She was a housewife, but that was unusual because every other woman in my life, aunts, grandmothers, everybody worked. My great-grandmother, my mother's grandmother, was the primary breadwinner. And they were working out of they necessity. They worked out of necessity. Not because of self-actualization. Right. And also because men couldn't be guaranteed steady work. Unions kept them out of trades jobs. So it was rare that they could earn a regular enough income to support a family. So every woman I knew in my family worked. So there was that kind of, well, what are we fighting for? We're already on the Mm -hmm. job doing it all. There wasn't a conversation of more. The conversation was, how do we make sure our men can get something, right? But generationally, the aunts that I was closest to, who was my father's youngest sister, she was only 10 years older than me, Mm -hmm. right? But I was very close to her. And she was one of the first people I knew that went to college. She definitely... At the kitchen table, I would see the battles between my aunt and her mother. And it was generational. Generational. You know, my aunt, she was of the movement on all different fronts. How you wore your hair. She was the first woman in our family to wear her hair in a big afro. She went to college. She studied African dance and she brought new ideas. And she was more critical of her mother's way of being, Mm -hmm. which was more traditional. But my grandmother would go to work and then she would come home and start making dinner. Second shift. It's second taking care shift. Of the family. My aunt used to bristle at that, bristle at what she probably perceived as a subservient way of being to her father, my grandfather. She would challenge the system in ways. She was frustrated by her mother and her sort of backwards mm-hmm. ways. She would come to our dinner table where my mother was more of her contemporary. Mm -hmm. And there would be the discussions about what she was frustrated with in her household versus 
what she saw for herself. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's the long way of saying, yes, those conversations started to happen Mm -hmm. around the kitchen table, but I didn't have to have those conversations with my mother. Mm. You know, being a woman means you do it all. You're going to cook and clean. But that do it all thing is interesting because when we were young, that was still the message. Yes, women should go to the workplace. Mm -hmm. They should climb the corporate ladder. They should get jobs that were normally reserved for men, and then they should come home and take care of the family also. It was this sort of, you have to have it all. And do you remember Anjali? Yes. (laughs) That perfume? That perfume. (laughs) Oh, yeah, because that's where the song came from, Megan. Because I know that. I didn't know the song other than that commercial. Was that song made for that commercial, or was it actually, I I can brown the bacon, fry it up in the pan, and and never never let them know, never let him... Forget he's, he's a, a man because I'm, I'm a woman by Jolie. <laughs> right on. It's stupid. I hated stupid that song. Ad. I, hated <laughs> for, I hate that ad. I've, I've actually played with trying to go back and figure out who's the ad company that created mm-hmm. that ad. In my mind, it was a bunch of men who came up with it. Because remember the woman, she was all dressed, all sexy and everything and taking off her clothes and doing all this. And I thought, that's a bill of goods. Mm-hmm. They were just trying to hold on to the idea that woman would still cook in the kitchen and bring while home a she check. was also earning yeah. and bringing home a paycheck. Yeah. Well, we, you know, we're not beyond those arguments, you know, those challenges with gender roles. We still struggle with when women say, I want to have it all. Mm-hmm. It's still the remnants of that. What does having it all mean? Because you can't have it all, nor should that ever be a goal. But I think it's still the fragments of that falsehood right. that was sold to us. Breakfast. Were you a big breakfast family? Me, Michelle, mm-hmm. was not. Everybody else was. Okay, and they why, thought why, I was what crazy. What did you have against breakfast? I was kind of a picky eater. I didn't like ah, any breakfast, you anything. Were a picky and my eater. mother, who ate everything all the time, thought I was crazy. We had big breakfasts because my brother, he's a growing athlete. Yeah. So it was everything. Cereal followed by scrambled or fried eggs, followed by lots of toast and bacon and link sausage. But every now and then we'd get the patty sausage. Mm-hmm. So breakfast was big. You know, I was at a time my mother tried to force me to eat breakfast, but I was really stubborn. I didn't like bacon. I hated eggs. I only started you didn't liking like eggs. Bacon. I didn't like bacon, sausage, all of the breakfast food. So what did I eat? Peanut butter and jelly. Every morning until I went to college. <laughs> <laughs> really? That was your... Re- that was okay. my go-to. Was that out of protest? I'm just not going to eat with y'all? That or was you really all like peanut I really butter and liked. Jelly that much? And then my mom... I really liked peanut butter and jelly. It was sort of a compromise that I made with my mother because I thought, well, it's got peanuts, it's protein, a little bit of oil, nothing's wrong with bread. If we're having toast, why can't I have it in a sandwich form? And jelly, everybody was having jelly on their toast. Let me just put it on my peanut butter. She gave up. And I literally ate peanut butter and jelly every morning for most of my life, literally until I was in college. That's when I sort of started liking eggs. So that's what I mean by everybody else in the whole household, on the whole planet, loved breakfast food except for Michelle Robinson. So I despised breakfast. I it was just you, but you like breakfast now. Oh yeah, I'm big into all of it now. Oh, give me eggs Benedict, any eggs anyway. 
But peanut butter and jelly until I was into my 20s. Do you still sneak off and have a peanut butter? I do a not. I think sometimes. I kind of OD'd on it. I don't, I don't do it <laughs> no much anymore. anymore. And if I sit here and think about it, I think, yeah, that would be nice. But don't keep it around because also Malia was allergic to peanuts. The peanuts, so there was no peanuts in the house. We tested the theory. We didn't believe she was really allergic because the babysitter saw her have the allergic reaction. So my worst parenting move is when I decided on my own that she really wasn't allergic because I didn't, nobody in our family was allergic to peanuts. Barack and I together forced her to test it out. (gasps) (laughs) And she was, she was maybe three. (laughs) And she was like, no, mom, I really don't think I'm I'm like, nah, come on, kid. It's just peanut butter. And we made her try a big spoonful. (laughs) Luckily, her allergic reaction was digestive. Okay, so she didn't break out in hives or have an anaphylactic She just threw up right on me, which Ah. was, thank God. And Barack and I looked at ourselves with our peanut butter going, oh, well, we shouldn't have done that. You just admitted that in front of a microphone. I did. (laughs) You know, we did. We force fed her peanut butter and until she threw up and she was like, yeah, I'm okay. allergic. All right. So so from then on, we stopped having peanut butter in our house. <laughs> I haven't had peanut butter in a while. One of the best things about this journey that I'm about to go on with all of you in this podcast, Your Mama's Kitchen, is what we are going to hear next. Every week, I will ask guests to share a recipe or a technique or something special that comes from or is inspired by their mama's kitchen or the food they grew up with. These recipes will cover a full array of flavors, sweet, salty, fatty, healthy, decadent, and everything in between. Because Michelle Obama is so generous, she shared two things that take her down memory lane. So when I go home, if I ask my mom to cook anything, there are a couple of things that taste like home. Her homemade cakes, because she used to bake us our birthday cakes each year. And and she did that even in the White House. She tried to, but she felt like the ovens weren't right. Oh. And there's something different about a homemade cake. Like, we lived in the White House, pastry chefs, Susie, lover, still the best. But there's something about professional cakes that are too dense. Mm -hmm. They're too Mm -hmm. solid. They're too perfect. A homemade cake is moist. Yeah. And it's looser, right? Mm -hmm. The the cake itself, it's just, and it's got a crustiness on top. The imperfection of it is what makes it Mm -hmm. good. Especially around the edge. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. That was my mom's cakes. And she did chocolate for me, of course. I am a devotee to chocolate. Red velvet from my brother. Mm -hmm. So getting her to do a homemade cake, that's one. And then one dish that feels very much like home, which was a hand-me-down recipe from our South Carolina elders Mm -hmm. who were great cookers. And my father's mother learned how to cook this dish. And my father loved it so much, my grandmother taught my mother. And it's something called red rice. Red rice. Red rice is... A rice that is steeped in tomato sauce, not runny, but where the tomato mixture soaks it up, right? So that the white rice becomes red. Then in that, you add bacon, Mm. a spicy kind of sausage, and shrimp. But it's not Creole. It's really just It's not like a jambalaya. It's not a jambalaya. And it's drier, but it's so flavorful and it tastes great hot 
or it's a great picnic kind of rice hmm. where you can serve it cold or warm and it tastes better over time. The longer it's set in the refrigerator, the better it tastes. So it's the kind of rice when it's in there, you come and get a scoop. Even when it's cold, you don't even want to warm it up. You just go back and eat it. Red rice feels like home and it feels like big home, like way back home, like the southern part of home that for us. That sounds delicious. Yeah. Sausage sliced or is it? The patty sausage, all of it cut up mm-hmm. into bits. So you get little chunks of it, different sizes, mm-hmm. you know, so it's sort of crumbled by hand, not cut too finely. Right, not like a, like a uh, jambalaya, you usually get a disc, like a uh, link sausage. No, this no, is a patty, okay. more of a spicy mm-hmm. patty. Now, I'm not sure how much of my mother's recipe is a take on the original, mm-hmm. but this was how my mom cooked it. Okay. And when I go home, I'm either going to ask her for a cake or red rice. Red rice. Hmm. All right, now I'm going to figure out how to make this red rice. Yeah. Next time you come over, I'm going to serve it. Yeah, we'll, we'll share the recipe. Okay. That's home for me. We have spent a delicious bit of time talking about your kitchen. How has it influenced you? Oh, wow. The Michelle Obama that we know now, the forever first lady, how is she influenced by all the things that she saw and experienced in that little old kitchen on Euclid Avenue? Well, all of it happened there because the tools that I have for getting through that keep me upright, that have gotten me through a really interesting life journey that I could have never expected that led me out of the South Side into some of the finest universities that I never thought I could compete in, let alone thrive in, led me through a career in law, through a career in nonprofits, helped me become the mother that I am and gave me the resilience to stand by the first Black president and try to be an equally impactful first lady. All of that, it was imparted around that little table with that yellow checkerboard plastic tablecloth as my mom did dishes on that Formica sink and talked to us little girls as we played jacks on that linoleum floor. The conversations around my household about fairness and honesty and how to be a person in this world, how to treat others, the compassion, that all happened around the table, either by spoken word or story or just watching my father pay the bills every week at that table. The humor that I have, my ability to tell stories and laugh at myself and laugh at the world, it happened at that table those stories happen there in that little bitty kitchen. And that's one of the reasons why I tell parents today when they think about how do you raise a, a whole human being, I remind them that it has nothing to do with stuff. It doesn't have anything to do with the size of the house or the depth of the kitchen counter or <laughs> whether you have the right kind of stove or mm-hmm. oven. We had none of it. We had so little The stuff wasn't it. It was the quality of the love in the space. And I still believe that that's true. And we have lived in some of the grandest homes that you can see. But when I think about what I want to teach my girls, it reverts back to those messages I got in that little bitty kitchen. That was the power of my parents' love, that consistency, the quality of the interactions. That's what it means to be a parent. That's how you instill something worthwhile for your kids. Yeah, That's what my kitchen table 
my kitchen was for me. I can see how much that means to you and how much it still lives inside you. For sure. I have loved talking to you. I always love talking to you, but I've loved talking to you about this in particular. I think there have been a lot of life lessons here today. I think it's an important question. It's such a valuable way to reflect on one's life. This is start at that kitchen table. It's kind of a rear view mirror. We're looking backwards so we can figure out how to order our steps now. Amen. And the kitchen table is an important space in our lives today. Thanks for sitting down with me. Thanks for having me, babe. Kitchens really do bring us so much more than just meals. The Robinson family's itty-bitty Chicago kitchen is a great example of that. There was plenty of food, but the most important items on the menu weren't the kinds of things that you find at the farmer's market or the grocery store. Unconditional love, honesty, loyalty, integrity, and the kind of laughter you feel deep down in your soul. We all know a little bit more about how Michelle Obama turned out to be such a special person now that we've learned about life inside her mama's kitchen. And best of all, we all get to share a little bit of Marion Robinson's brand of home-cooked love. You'll find a link to a recipe for the red rice Michelle Obama craves when she wants a taste of home on our show page and on my Instagram account. We hope you decide to try it out in your kitchen. And when you do, we want to hear about it. Share your pictures, your feedback, your own family spin on red rice, or your thoughts on this special conversation and messages about the importance of building a supportive kitchen table in your own life. Now remember, use the hashtag YourMama'sKitchen on Instagram or wherever you post. We'd love to see all of it. Thanks so much for being with us as we launch this new show. We've got so much more in store for you in coming weeks, including conversations with Gail King, Andy Garcia, D-Nice, W. Kamau Bell, Harry Kondabolu, Abby Wambach, and Glennon Doyle, and Carrie Washington. Those are just the start. We hope you'll make your mama's kitchen a part of your regular podcast diet. We are dedicating this episode to the life and beautiful legacy of Tafari Campbell. We will miss you. We'll miss your food. We'll miss your smile. And this week's special thanks go to Clean Cuts in Washington, D.C. Phil DeRosa and Anthony Esposito with TPS Audio on Martha's Vineyard. Phil's looking at me right now as I'm reading this. Crystal Carson and Melissa Winter. Melissa Bear with Say What Media. And Good Ear Music Supervision for their help in getting us the music you will hear at the end of these episodes. That's 504 by the Soul Rebels. Love it. Okay, that's it for now. I'm Michelle Norris. Come back next week to see what we're serving up. Until then, be bountiful. This has been a Higher Ground and Audible original, produced by Higher Ground Studios. Producers for Your Mama's Kitchen are Natalie Rin and Sonia Tun. Sound design and engineering from Andrew Epen and Roy Baum. Production support from Angel Carreras and Julia Murray. Higher Ground Audio's editorial assistants are Jenna Levin and Camila Thurdikus. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Nick White, Mukta Mohan, Dan Fearman, and Michelle Norris. Executive producers for Audible are Zola Mashariki, Nick D'Angelo, and Anne Hepperman. The show's closing song is 504 by The Soul Rebels. Special thanks to Joe Paulson, Melissa Bear, and Angela Peluso. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashariki. Chief Content Officer, Rachel Giazza. 
Copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC.